The message, as you can see from your handout, is called Christ the Lamp of David, the only hope in the midst of darkness. And I would suggest that here in America we have some darkness. In fact, all over the world there's uh, quite a bit of darkness out there. But we are taking our text from First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 7. It says, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Well, that's the word of the Lord, and he'll most certainly add his abundant, gracious, and magnified blessing to the reading of his holy truth. And Let us pray. Our most blessed and gracious Father in God, and in Jesus' name and for his sake, we come before you, Lord. We have many that are out sick today, and we ask you, Father, for your merciful hand to be upon them. We thank you for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which we are able to come here today and to worship you in spirit and in truth. May Christ be exalted from the reading of your word, uh, from the exposition uh, of your word, and also, Lord, in, uh, as we apply it and put it into practice of our li- with our lives, that, that people will see Christ, whether they know that they're seeing Christ or not, but that through those actions we know we're empowered by Christ and that may our lives be that which exalts Him. We seek revival, Lord, for uh, for our congregation, but we seek it first as we know that it must come through individuals. So we seek it for us ourselves personally, that we may see Christ more thoroughly from Scripture, but that we also may see Christ in one another and see the potential of Christ in those that don't know Him. We ask you, Father, to be glorified in our worship of you from the Word and speak unto our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that we may understand the Word and empower us to apply the Word. In Jesus' name and for His sake, we do pray. Amen. So chapter 21, in these 20 verses, there's a bit of darkness. We've had the blessing of reading of two at least righteous kings, kings that loved Jehovah God, that walked for the most part with Jehovah God, and we, we could see ourselves in those kings as those who were saved by God's grace because they had their faults and they had their fo- foibles. Asa, the grandfather of whom we're reading about today, Ahaziah, and, uh, and then his father, Jehoshaphat, and two men who believed in the Lord God, in Jehovah God, two men who loved God and though they had their problems and their difficulties and um, and things that they had done, who here could say that they have walked a perfect life with the Lord since we've been saved? None of us. But in the chapter, as we see this, we we, we recognize now Jehoram or Joram uh, from uh, he's called by both names, and we see that there is a compatible explanation of his history in second in second kings chapter 8 verses 16 to 22 as far as his reign but jehoshaphat is if you recall that he was the uh he reigned from 873 to 848 approximately bc and uh he reigned for 25 years as the scripture tells us and but the uh jehoram may have reigned four years as a co-regent with his father. And then, so he reigned solo 
after his father passed away from 844 to 841 BC. Eight years total, but four years by himself. And he's the great, great, great grandson of Solomon. Solomon, the son of David. So in this reign of Jehoram, as we see in verse 1, the delegation of Jehoshaphat among his sons. In verse 1, we see that Jehoshaphat dies and Ahaziah, uh, the eldest son, rules. And in verse 2, in both the King James Version and your English Standard Version, it looks like you have two uh, Azariahs there, right? There's not two Azariahs. There's two different names in this particular case. The first one is uh, Azariah. Ezer means help. Azariah means Yah helps. And then the second one is Azariahu. It has an extra, it has the letter Vav right at the end, which more literally would mean Yah, he is help. So we have two sons with similar names. It's not like George Foreman who named all his sons George. (laughs) He had two different names. And it's somewhat confusing if you read your Hebrew, if you're studying Hebrew, like Sister Keeley's studied some Hebrew in in her Bible college. If you studied Hebrew, like Jeremiah is called by both names. See, sometimes he's called Yermiah, Jeremiah, or Yermiahu. So his name means Yermiah, means Yah will stand, will rise, or Yermiahu, Yah, he will rise or he will stand. And, and, but it's still the singular same Jeremiah. Uh, Elijah is the same way. Uh, sometimes his name is Eliyah. Sometimes his name is Eliyahu. But, and it's just one, one person. So sometimes that gets a little confusing. You have to look at its context. And where you have two names side by side as sons, you have to assume that, well, they're two, two different. Unless there's any other con- comments given to those sons, you have to consider that there's two different people. Joram or Jehoram, that's one person who had two names. And many countries have that, where two different names are given of the same person. Anyway, in verse 3, the sons are set up as princes and governors in key cities. And this same thing is done by Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, according to 2 Chronicles 11 and verse 23. Now, in your notes also, the next part in verses 4 through 7, you have the devilish murderous activity of Jehoram. I I think I even heard a gasp when Brother Wyatt read verse 3. And, well, you should. Here is this eldest son, and then after Jehoshaphat dies, he decides, well, I don't want any of these guys in fortified cities having power to overthrow me, so I'm going to just put them all to death. And so that's what he does in verses 4 and 5, uh, probably after Jehoshaphat dies. He, um, in his four-year, at the beginning of his four-year start of his solo reign, and he killed his brothers at the age of 36. He's, the 36, he's 36 years old, and he kills his brothers. Verse 6, as we read it, we see that he's an idolater, and he marries Ahab's Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, whose name we find out a little bit later in the next chapter, his name, Ataliah, or uh, Atliah. Anyway, Ataliah is her name, 
And um, she is an idolater, and he becomes an idolater right along with her in verse 6. And verse 7, that's our key verse where Jehovah God does not destroy him for the sake of his covenant with David. Then in verses 8 through 10, we have the dwindling kingdom under Jehoram's rule. Edom, which is southeast of Israel. This Edom is the land where Esau lived, the brother of Jacob, you know, who's named Israel. And he had his 12 sons, but his brother, his older brother, Esau, was also called Edom. And this is where the Edomites were. And since the days of David, that whole area of Edom it was a vassal state. It was under the control of the kings of Judah. And it stayed that way all the way until this king. And they rebelled and they won their liberty. They got their freedom. And not only Edom did, but a little people called Libna also in the second part of verse 10. They rebelled and Judah lost control over them. And then we have this very interesting, from verses 11 through 15, we have this very interesting little portion here from uh, that I call the rebuke from Elijah. First, verse 11 speaks of the immorality, the wicked immorality that's in Jerusalem and Judah altogether. Now, during the reigns of Asa, his grandfather, and Jehoshaphat, his father, Jehoshaphat most particularly took down a lot of the high places and uh, destroyed them, but they kept popping up by the people. However, in Jehoram's reign, in Jehoram's reign, he actually set them up. He puts up high places up in the up up in the hill country, and adorned them with uh, with idols, and they committed a lot of immoral acts during this place. And then we have this very mysterious, verse 12 through 15, we have this very mysterious writing of Elijah. And the commentators on this and the scholars are not settled in what this is. Because if you know your Bible at least a little well, and Second Kings, you'll, you know that the translation of Elijah, remember that Elijah passed on his mantle to Elisha. Eliah passed it on to Elisha you know, Elijah and Elisha, and he passed it on as a flaming chariot from heaven came riding by and Elijah went into heaven by a whirlwind. And when his mantle fell down, Elisha picked it up and he carried on the ministry. Well, apparently this happened in the uh, days uh, prior to Jehoram's reign in the days of Jehoshaphat. And so here's this letter. And so some of the commentators are saying, well, did Elijah... Is this the Elijah of the northern kingdom or is this a different one in the southern kingdom? Because also the Elijah of the northern kingdom wasn't known for writing letters. So there is this little bit of a, a little bit of a conflict there. I suggest to you, this is my opinion on it, that it is the Elijah of first Kings who had the showdown with all of them. And he wrote this letter while he has Elisha as his servant and he wrote this letter for Jehoram, either after he was born or before he was born, miraculously, to say that 
this is what's going to happen to you in verses 11 through 15. And it's uh, because he's uh, the immorality and so forth. It says that the letter came to him from Elijah the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, and in the ways of Asa, the king of Judah, and so forth. And you also killed your brothers. And uh, in verse 14, Behold, the Lord will bring great plague on your people, your children, your wives. In verse 15, you're going to suffer severe sickness of a disease, your bowels, until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day. And he sends this, and so this letter comes probably by the hand of Elisha's uh, servant. It was written by Elijah. It was given to Elisha who succeeded him. Then he's translated. And so the letter comes in the days when Jehoram is the king. And so that's, that's my opinion on it. Uh, because it fits with what we see from Scripture, that the prophetic Scriptures, even the New Testament, which speak unto our lives, were far before we were born. And we read the Scriptures and we know, well, that speaks of me. It speaks of us. And we saw it in the Old Testament. Uh, Cyrus, by name, Isaiah, mentions Cyrus by name hundreds of years before he was born. as uh, And that came to pass by name. And so... It shouldn't surprise us that this could be done as well. And then finally, we see to the end of the chapter, verses 18 to 20, in the end of the chapter, the ruin of the wicked king. There's an incurable disease in verses 18 and 19. It's the fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy. And then in verse 20, his ignoble death. He depart- In the English Standard Version, it says that he departed with no one's regret. There was no desire for him. King James Version speaks of desire. No one cared. That, in fact, they were pretty happy that he was gone, uh, generally speaking. And that's a uh, you know, pretty sad commentary on somebody's life. How'd, how'd you like to pass away and then say, well, no one, good riddance. Now, let's have some application. First, in verse 4, as he murders his siblings, it reminds us immediately of the first murder in the Bible in Genesis chapter 4, Cain murdering Abel. Murder, he's a murderer like Cain. And we recognize that through a lack of faith, this is done. Hebrews 11 and verse 4 tell us about Abel, that by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was condemned as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith. Though he died, he still speaks. And likewise, we see this of of the king. Having killed his brothers, having murdered his brothers, his lot was without faith. Uh, He had no faith in Jehovah God. But it's also a warning for us who are saved that when we slip in faith, there's that expression that if I'm not my brother's keeper, as in Genesis 4, I'm my brother's murderer. And uh, when we are not walking faithfully, uh, we may bring a witness that is detrimental to our brothers and sisters. We don't want to, as the New Testament says, do anything to cause our brothers to stumble. And, and, and then this extreme of murder is just a reminder of that. That no man, as Paul says in Romans, no man lives unto himself. And so we're members of the body of Christ connected one to another. In verses uh, 6 and also verse 11, we see a mixed marriage as with Pergamos or Pergamum in the book of Revelation. 
it speaks of this, and I would almost say Thyatira because he's married to the daughter of Jezebel, Athaliah. We would see that actually in another, the next chapter with Athaliah's reign. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, though, says, But I have a few things, the Lord Jesus speaking to Pergamos, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And so likewise, as he set up high places on the hill country of Judah and uh, murdered his brothers and uh, was an idol worshiper and so forth, he caused the people of Judah to stumble, being a cause for it, rather than tearing down these things and then the flesh of the people rising up. Here is a king that is saying, hey, go ahead and do what you like. And in verses 8 through 10, we have many areas once under control or gone. When we step away from the faith, when we stop trusting in Christ for even a moment, we'll recognize that areas that we thought were subdued, areas that we thought were under control, that the Spirit had ministered unto us to find a blessing in, we see that they'll, when we step away from faith, that they'll be gone. And the extreme of that is like in Jehoram's life is that what he thought he had was gone completely. He was not a man of faith and he was, since he lacked faith, we see this in the parable of the, of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. Remember that the Lord Jesus tells a parable of, uh, of some servants. One of them he gives five talents to and another he gives two talents to and another he gives one talent to. Uh, and then the Lord of the house goes off and when he returns, the one with five talents had gained five more talents. And so now he has a total of ten. Master, your five talents have gained five, uh, five more. Here's ten. The two talents have gained two more. Here's, here's four. They've been doubled. But then when he comes to the one, he is hidden in the earth. And so it was. Uh, he says, well, I knew that you were a hard man, an austere man, so I took the talent that I had and I hid it in the earth. Hid it in the flesh. Hid it in, did not put it into heavenly things, but gave it unto the things that were, uh, were without faith. And he says to him in Matthew 25, verse 29, uh, he takes that away and he gives it to the one who has 10. And he says, to everyone who has, will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Um, in between the lines, I could say, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Here is this king, and he's been given all this power, but because he's an idolater, and that the long-suffering and the patience of Jehovah God has given him this responsibility, he squanders it. And so even what he thought he had, it was taken away. Four years of reigning, and two of those years, he was diseased until his bowels gushed out. And there is a picture of a type of antichrist, because that's what Judas did when he hung himself after he betrayed the Lord and that his bowels spilled out. And then finally, the malicious hearts will ultimately end in agony, verses 18 and 19. Again, with the parable of, uh, of the talents in Matthew 25, verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the end of this king, this wicked king in Judah, was an end that was agonizing. 
weeping and gnashing of teeth would be his ultimate end, certainly. But even on this earth, before he passes away, we saw that also in the New Testament. It happened to Herod, where they lifted him up as in, glimmer, in his glimmering apparel, and they said, here is the voice of a, a God, not of a man. And he sucked it, in, sucked it up and sucked it in as if, well, that were true. And he died a rotten, disgusting, deteriorating death, just like this. So what do we see with this? As far as the blessing from our text, the prophetic uh, background of our verse God's covenant with David. Remember that God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1-15. through 15. David wants to build a house for God. He tells Nathan, I want to build a house and for God. I'm living in a house of wood and God's living in a tent. Let me build a house for him. He says, oh, do what's in your heart, O king, Nathan says. The next day, Nathan comes back and says, no, I got a new word for you, David. You can't build God a house, but he's going to build you a house. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, And uh, when he does, he says, verse 8, he says, Now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. Verse 9 of 2 Samuel 7 says, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be, uh, be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Verse 11 says, from, that, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house Verse 12 says, when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Speaking of Solomon, but ultimately speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And that's a very interesting, I mean, I don't have time to go into that, but uh, did Jesus commit iniquity? No, Solomon did. And the second part of this didn't come to pass. He wasn't disciplined for it. He reigned, he sinned, he died because it speaks also of Jesus Christ who didn't sin, but he suffered so that Solomon may live. And he suffered with the stripes of men and with the rod of men. In verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all the vision Nathan spoke to David. And so that's the background of this covenant with David. Moreover, the promise to David, I just read in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So the promise is there's a covenant with David 
in verses 1 through 15. There's the promise to David in particular in verse 16. And finally, God's lamp for David. And this is a very interesting thing because we see this lamp in verse 7 of Second Chronicles chapter 21. Sometimes it's in the King James Version it's translated uh, candle. Nair is the Hebrew word for it. As opposed to light. Sometimes it might be, I think some translations I found, English translations, they try to translate it light, which is a different, completely different word. Or is the Hebrew word for light. But can, candle or lamp is the word nair. And in Second Samuel 29 is a psalm that David penned in Psalm 18. But here's an interesting note, and I gave it to you as far as references. 2 Samuel 22, verse 29, and, Sam, and, and Psalm 18, verse 28. Now, this is one of the reasons why we know that Psalm 18, the inscriptions in the Psalms are Scripture. They are inspired. Because the, that which is spoken of as a predecessor in 2 Samuel 22 David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when uh, the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, and it goes through Psalm 18. And almost all the words are exact, but there are some differences in it. As many of the Bible scholars will mention, and I think I mentioned it when we went through on our Wednesday nights, the Psalms and Psalm 18, there's some slight differences and variations in it. And so there's a suggestion that once Saul was dead and David became king, he penned this psalm, Psalm 18. But in Psalm 20, uh, in 2 Samuel 20, 22, he pens it again as an older man because in verse 29, it says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. You are my lamp, O Lord, and your light lightens my darkness. In Psalm 18, verse 28, it says, For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. There's a little bit of a difference there. Did you catch that? Psalm 18 says, For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. And then in Second Samuel, it says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. In the latter years, David repens the psalm. And there's a difference, there's a shift. In the days when he was young and is, was in his strength, he, the Lord lit his lamp, lit the promise. But as he's older, the Lord not only lights his lamp, you are my lamp. And we see that blessed progression here in Christianity and life in Christ. But let's look at the verse. How does the verse bless us? This profitable blessing from the verse. The first thing is that it's the, we see the long-suffering of God through Christ. First part of verse 7 in Second Chronicles says, let me get my place here. In Second Chronicles 21, the first part of verse 7 says, uh, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. He was not willing to destroy the house of David. Not willing reminds us of a passage of Scripture. I'm going to actually ask you to turn there in the New Testament 
keep your place there in 2 Samuel, is uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Many of you know this passage of Scripture. While you'll turn, while you're turning there, some of you all still turning there for some of you all. I'll recite it from the old King James version. It says, "The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." That's the King James version. The English Standard Version says very similarly, in verse nine. If you're there, say Amen. All right, if you're not, say amen, I'll wait for you. It says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow, slack in the King James Version, to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient, long-suffering in the King James Version, but is patient toward you, uh, uh, long-suffering to usward, patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance or come to repentance in the King James Version. And that often that long-suffering to us were just left out by some people saying, well, you know, he's not willing that any should perish. And sometimes, and it, it bothers me a little bit, but I don't think God's bothered by it because he already knows. But there's some people that take that verse and look at it and say, well, see, God's not willing that any should perish. Wait a minute. You left out a part of that verse. It says he's long-suffering to us word in the King James Version or patient toward you. Because the letter's written to believers. And even believers that don't believe yet, that's who it's written to, and that's the context of it. Because what you're doing by taking that out, you're suggesting that God's not willing that any should perish. They, they give, me, give us the idea that God is fretting over, well, I hope that they get saved. I sent my only son, and they're just rejecting him. That's just ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Uh, it implies that the will of God is something that's kind of uh, mamby-pamby, just kind of, uh, uh, well, it might happen. He's just not sure. He's waiting to see if you're going to trust him. Well, that's not what it's about. He is sovereign, and he, his will will be carried out. There's just no question about it. But at the same time in saying that, we do know that His love, and that's the second point of this, the love of God in Christ, His love is far beyond what our corrupt flesh will even recognize. We have to trust in God's Word. We were looking at that in Hebrews today, that Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 12, where it says that the Word of God is active and, and uh, is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. That the reason why it's that way is that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart and even to the dividing asunder, which is a little earlier than that, the dividing asunder of joints and marrow. The reason why it is is because I need to trust the word of God more than I trust myself. As I preached last week, the word of God is greater than my feelings and my failings. And so I need to trust the, the truth of the word of God more than I trust myself and I recognize that the love of God 
is still so mysterious to me that though his will will be carried out and there's nothing that will confound his will, that he loves those whom he loves with an everlasting love, as it says in Jeremiah 31. He loves with an everlasting love and the love of God in Christ is such that we're, as in our verse in Second Chronicles chapter 21, verse 7, the second part of it says, because of the covenant that he had made with David, this love that he has for David is a love that is exemplified in the Lord Jesus that when he came in, going, getting ready to go to the cross, when he came into Jerusalem, in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 42, when he drew near to the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Then a little bit later on, after he'd made his triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, he, you can he even hear between the lines of the passages of, passage of Scripture, Jesus weeping over the unbelief of this city that has the name of God, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The Lord Jesus exemplifying the love of Jehovah God that though he's not willing that any should perish, yeah, that, that, that he's long-suffering to us whom he has saved, and those whom he would save through our witness even to come, he's not willing that any of those should perish because of his great love, his great love for David, the covenant that he had made with David, even like a covenant that he had made with Abraham that's recorded in Hebrews that he swore by two, two immutable things. He made an oath by himself. He made the promise, and to secure the promise, he says, I swear by myself that I will bring you into the promise of what I've told you. And likewise with David, that his love for David was such that he promises with a covenant and makes an oath with David so that secured in the Lord Jesus Christ in which this promise is fulfilled, that that's what you have, that's what I have. The long-suffering of God through Christ and because the love of God in Christ. And those two things put together, just those two things, will present a blessing to us that will secure our salvation because of Christ being the one that I mentioned to you in Second Samuel chapter 7. That when he commits iniquity, Jesus committed no iniquity. There was no deceit or guile found in his mouth. But yet he was disciplined by the rods of men and suffered and died, weakened in his weak, most weakest, physically weakened condition, he hung upon the cross to suffer God's wrath, so that when he shed his blood after he had died, that there's no one that can say, well, God didn't provide enough. He did. And through that covenant, when Jesus says, it is finished, there's nothing that we need do except to believe and trust in him for salvation. But finally, the Lord God, through this passage of Scripture, 
brings Jesus Christ who is the light of God and provided in the middle of your handout there, the passage of scripture that, that associated associates with it. The last part of verse 7 where it says, where it says, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever, we become the sons of David. Not only are we the sons of God, but we become the sons of David because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this lamp was promised to David. And certainly we see historically that there was uh, the progression of kings that would sit upon the throne in Jerusalem and over the house of Judah all the way up until there was no more kings. And then because there was a parenthesis, uh, if you will, there was a blank part where there's no king that reigned until Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, came after they had been exiled to Babylon. When he came, he became governor. He wasn't even king in Jerusalem. He was governor. So that when the king came, which is Jesus Christ, the descendant of David through Joseph and uh, Solomon's son, and the descendant of David through Mary, uh, to Mary's great, 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 etc. grandfather, Nathan, David's son, that because of Jesus Christ and the lamp that God fulfilled in Christ, that we are sons forever through the promise of David, that Christ is the lamp, the only hope in the midst of darkness, and through this, the promises, this covenant will be brought up again and again in Chronicles, but it's brought up this first time. It's brought up this first time. It was brought up in Rehoboam's day after Solomon. But now after a succession of some kings, after Rehoboam, now there's this very dark king and this very dark time with idolatry and immorality and sin running rampant. But through that, God brings the hope through that very little statement in verse 7, the covenant of David, the promise to David of the lamp in David and that lamp being Christ. Jesus said of that lamp, which was himself in John chapter 8, verse 12, as Jesus spoke, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And despite how dark it gets, despite how miserable we might see our nation right now we have the blessed hope which is a light that shines brighter than the sun standing in its strength the lord jesus christ and sometimes we turn away from it because of the sins that so easily beset us that we think i am not worthy and and that, that i might melt before his countenance because the glory of the Lord Jesus is so good, so bright. And that way, that way we know his grace and mercy as well, that even though I fall so short so much, I want revival in my life so much. I want revival for our church and my brothers and sisters so much. But Lord, I fail so miserably. And then I look at his word and I commune with him in prayer. And then I see... Oh, Lord, you're so good because as shallow as I am in the flesh and as miserable I am as a, as a man, you're still good to me. You're still good to this people. And in fact, in spite of me, in spite of 
being a pastor that you've called to shepherd your people, that in spite of me, you still bless them and it shows me, oh Lord, you're so good. You're so good. You're so great. And you're, and you're so loving that the light that you shine is such a blessing. And remember, every walk of life is carried with this lamp. That David in his strength, young people, that you have this lamp and you get to do things for God. God, and you can attempt great things for God because he's so good that the lamp is, as David said in Psalm 18, verse 28, when he said it in this, when he said it in that way, for it is you who light my lamp, that the Lord Jesus in you, if you've made a confession of faith and you're young, you're strong, you're vibrant, that that light of Christ be in you and it blesses others and your activity will show the truth of Christ ruling and reigning in your life. But as you grow, you find out the things I did when I was young, it seemed like I, I did a lot for the Lord, but it's like, a, uh, like what Billy Sunday used to say that, uh, that some churches become like a canary in a cage, a lot of activity, but going nowhere. <laughs> but as I look back and I see, it wasn't just you lighting the lamp that is in me, Lord. You are the lamp. You are that light and you are that lamp. And everything about you, the wick and the oil, the Holy Spirit, that's what brings the blessing. And we see that those corruptions get illuminated more and more as we get older, don't we? Folks that are over 50 or 60 or so. Remember how Paul's progression was? I've mentioned this before in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. He writes this letter on his third missionary journey. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I was one born out of, out of due season. But the Lord called me, Jesus called me as, a, as an apostle. And I'm the least of the apostles. Then when he's in uh, his fourth missionary, missionary journey, while well, he's in Rome, he writes to the Ephesians and he says, one of his first letters that he had written while he's in prison, and he says, I am one of the least of all saints. And then at the end of that fourth missionary journey, after a couple, uh, uh, about two years or so that he's been in prison, he writes to Timothy just before he gets out. It's a couple, several months before he gets out. After spending all this time and preaching the gospel before Nero, or some people suspect that that's where Nero went crazy once he heard the gospel. It was one way or another, and the way that, was, that Nero went was the other. He just went nuts. But Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 15, he says, this, this, the truth of Jesus Christ is, is, is worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. He's the chief of sinners, or in the English Standard Version, of whom I am foremost. Paul wasn't getting greater the light of Christ and his lamp of the lamp of David was getting brighter. And as he saw the illumination of God in Christ, the truth of Christ and him crucified, it so captured him that he recognized that even though I'm getting better on this earthly plane, I'm getting more holy than I was. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Well, the answer is obvious. He goes on in chapter 8 at the end of chapter 7. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who has delivered him. And that 
now, even though he has grown better and better, more holy today than he was yesterday or, and more holy tomorrow than he was today, he recognized that in the illumination, I'm still corrupt and still need Jesus mostly. Spurgeon uh, preached this some time ago. It was published in 1906, long after Spurgeon's death. But he said this concerning Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Quote, Christ is the light of the world, destined to shed his beams over the whole earth. The day comes when all mankind will see the light. And he says a lot of other things and, and, and so forth and so on as he brings us about. But then he picks it up again towards the end of the message. He says this, quote, There shall be revival after revival. There shall be reformation after reformation. Shock of battle after shock of battle. And the dread artillery of God's great gospel shall be fired off against the hosts of hell. The gods of the heathen shall fall. Antichrist shall be overthrown. Babylon shall sink like a millstone. In the flood, the crescent of Mohammed must wane into eternal darkness. Israel shall behold her king, and the fullness of the Gentiles shall be gathered at her feet. So let our faith excite our courage, and our courage stimulate our patience and our patience gives zest to the full assurance of hope while we worship our Lord Jesus Christ as the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He is that lamp of David that God promised long ago through David and even through the dark reign of a king, the son of Jehoshaphat that that lamp still shone as brightly as when God first promised it to David in 2 Samuel 7, and even shines brighter since that lamp came to walk among men, to go to the cross and die for our sins, that he may shine brightly for our lives until he comes again. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, once again, I have failed to, to speak forth the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ because only he could speak it. But your mercy abounds, your long-suffering prevails, and your love brings a light that shines greater than men can speak. And that light shines even in the dark recesses of our hearts. I ask, Father, that, that through this word that we that we've heard today and feasted on today, that it will go to the dark recesses of our hearts to show those and illuminate those things that we need to confess before you so that we may see revival, so that we may climb Mount Calvary's hill to see the nail-pierced hands and the bloody feet of our Lord and Savior Jesus Messiah. And know that he died a death, rose again, ascended into heaven, and coming again. That time and again we may ascend the hill until Jesus comes again. In his name we do pray. Amen.